Welcome to the Christian Wealth Podcast, where people come to learn what the Bible says about money, wealth, and business. Be inspired by some of the greatest Christian thinkers and commentators from around the planet. Enjoy this episode with your host, Alex Cook. Excellent. Well, look, what I'll do is I'll pray um, to kick us off, and, uh, and then we'll get into it. I'll introduce Ah, Sue, Greenpoint, a local. Fantastic. Okay, well, look, I'm going to pray for us all now. So, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you uh, that you are a good God, and we know you are in control, even in a world that seems more chaotic by the day and getting more interesting. And, Lord, I know that you would like us to be discerning and to understand the times in which we live so that we can make wise decisions uh, and that we can steward well what you put into our hands. So, Lord, I just pray for tonight. pray uh, particularly for Jonathan, that you'll just bless him and just give him words uh, from, from you. And we just thank you that he can share his wisdom with us tonight. Uh, Lord, I pray for everyone on this uh, webinar, Lord, that you will um, not only bless their finances, Lord, but just give them great wisdom as they steward it to build your kingdom. That's why we're here. We desire to build your kingdom. And so we just thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, great to uh, have you on. Uh, so we had a very large registration tonight. Uh, it is recorded, so if for some reason you need to drop off a little bit early, um, we'll be sending out the recording in about a week or so. Um, and uh, also, if you've got loved ones and people like that you'd like to share it with, by all means, uh, please do so. So, um, yeah, let's let's get into it. Um, just to, just think. Obviously, we're talking about money, and a lot of people are going to ask questions at the end. Where um, both Jonathan and I are happy to answer all your questions, but it's important to say that. The purpose of a webinar is education. Uh, we're not here to give you personalised uh, financial advice in this uh, forum. So just keep that in mind as we uh, answer the questions. But as I say, more than happy to take all different types of questions. Uh, most of you know who I am because you're obviously on our email list. Uh, so I'm the founder of Wealth with Purpose, which is a, a stewardship ministry. And uh, Wealth with Purpose just aims to really teach what the Bible says about money, but with a real emphasis on helping you to apply it in your life so that you can become financially healthy. Um, and in particular, we want you to get healthy but so that you can then use your money to build God's kingdom. You know, life is very short and we want to use our money in ways that glorify God and, and really um, ultimately build his kingdom. And uh, there's lots of different ways that we can do that and contribute to that in different ways with the different gifts that God gives us. Um, so that's a bit about us. And as many of you know, we also have a financial planning arm called uh, Livingston Wealth Management, uh, and we also do a bit of mortgage broking as well, but our financial planning is a big focus of what we do. Now, our special guest tonight, very pleased to introduce uh, Jonathan Roachford. Uh, Jonathan and I met about five years ago, I'm guessing now, um, and uh, we got to know each other a little bit. And uh, Jonathan is the founder, and he's also the portfolio manager for a company called Narrow Road Capital. I must admit, I love that name. Good to see people using biblical names in their uh, uh, in their business. Uh, and he, he founded that business. What? How long ago was that, Jonathan? You founded that? 2012 Narrow Road started. Fantastic. And uh, he's a specialist in what we call fixed interest type investments. So things like debt instruments um, and anything where you can essentially invest in, in debt. Uh, and we'll, he'll be talking all about that. Uh, he manages institutional money. Uh, about $250 million, so no, not a small amount of money and obviously a huge responsibility. And he does that for institutions and for family offices here in Australia. 
and formerly worked at CBA managing a distressed debt portfolio. So we've got someone who is uh, extremely uh, competent in his area. And so I'm very pleased to uh, welcome him tonight. So thanks for being with us, uh, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Excellent. Well, look, just a little bit of a quick agenda. Um, now, most of you got the email, so you know what we want to talk about. Uh, I'd just like to always begin these things with a bit of a biblical mindset to wealth and stewardship, just because I think it's very important that we lay the foundations as to why we even do this in the first place. Um, then when I, I uh, hand it over to Jonathan, we're going to be talking about a whole range of things that are going on in the world at the moment. Um, I'm sure you'll sort of feel this sense of, you know, it's a bit weird out there. You know, house prices are booming, yet people are losing their jobs and we've got all these strict rules. And, you know, I think a lot of us, I don't know about you, but I'm well and truly over, over it with what, what's going on. Um, but there's a lot of challenges out there. And I think um, some of those challenges may well last for quite some time. So I want to talk about all those things, what the risks are. We'll talk about house prices, which is always a bit of a favourite for people. Um, what are opportunities? Because, you know, in the investment world, there's always opportunities as well. Um, the big issue that I come across uh, with my clients is, you know, how do you make income, you know, return a world where interest rates are zero. In fact, they're really negative when you allow, allow for inflation. Um, we'll talk about where do you invest when everything looks expensive, you know, shares and houses, they all look expensive. Um, and then I'm going to ask Jonathan to put his, uh, his career on the line by trying to predict the next 10 years, what's going to happen there. Uh, then, of course, a popular favourite, crypto. Should you buy crypto? That's a very common one that I get asked these days in seminars and webinars. And I'll also touch briefly on some biblical investment principles as well. So that's what we're going to cover. Um, just in terms of kicking off, as I say, I want to give you just a bit of a biblical mindset. Um, one of my favourite passages is from Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 to 18. And I'll read it out. It says, You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So here's the really, I guess, simple truth. And that is that our ability to produce and gain wealth comes from God. In fact, for that reason, I believe uh, in the body of Christ, we should be extremely humble uh, because we realize it's not our skill and any skill that we do have, it comes from God anyway. Um, so it's, it's from God. And of course, it's for God as well. And when I look at our society today, one of the very obvious things, particularly in Australia and in the Western world in general, if you look at that line here on verse 18, it says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives the ability. And what happens is when people get wealth, you know, the Bible generally is, it's not negative towards wealth in the, in the way that some Christians would like to paint it. It's more neutral. But a lot of the messages in the Bible are warning messages when it comes to money. And I think the reason for that is very simple, is that when you get wealth, particularly get a lot of it and you start to get prideful or you fall in love with money, um, then you forget the Lord. And ultimately, we don't want to let anything come between us and our relationship with God. And so that's why, you know, the Bible speaks so much about money, because we don't want to forget the Lord. We want to remember it. And I think in Australia, we've forgotten where all our, um, where all our, um, you know, all our blessings come from which I think is sad to see. And as our society gets more godless, it gets more problems. So that's a bit of just a, a bit of a snapshot there. And the other thing to say is um, God gives us all different amounts. There's a fabulous parable in Matthew 26. Um, it's called the parable of the gold bags, or depending on what version you read, it might be called the parable of the talents, depending on which version. In fact, in one version, it's actually called the parable of the loaned money. 
which I really like because the way I look at it is the money that I have is actually on loan to me from God. Um, but there's a biblical responsibility here with to manage well, net well whatever God puts in our hands. And most of you, I'm sure, have probably heard of this parable where, you know, there's a master, he goes on a journey and he leaves um, gold bags behind for three of his servants and he entrusts them with his wealth, okay? So God entrusts us with his wealth. And interestingly, he gives them all different amounts, which is like us, all of us have different amounts. And it says each according to his ability, okay? And then the expectation of the master is that when he goes away, he expects us to do something with what he's given us and to put it that Put it to work and of course this parable isn't just about money you could apply that to your talents uh, and any skills and giftings that god has given you and of course how you use your time because ultimately we're all going to stand before god one day and give an account and we'll have to give an account um, for how we've used the things he's given us but the important point to realize is this god has entrusted you with something now for some of you it'll be a little some of you it'll be a lot but we have to do something with it we have to Put it to work. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean go put it in the stock market, but we need to put to work what God has given us and we need to um, uh, to use our money for kingdom purposes. So that's very, very critical. And, of course, one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to say, what did you do with all the talents and time that I gave you? And lastly, we're to be stewards of his wealth. So really just to finish off um, before I hand over to Jonathan here is just this concept of stewardship um, I stole this off stewardship.com a number of years ago. Many of you would have heard me say it before. And that is that stewardship is managing God's blessings, which we have enormous blessings here in this country, in God's ways. And that's where I think the wheels start to come off. We don't always do it God's way. And certainly as you hear Jonathan speak, you realize that as a society, uh, we're certainly not doing it God's ways. And then lastly, for God's glory. In other words, we need to use our money to sow into things that have eternal value, you know, uh, life is extraordinarily fast and extraordinarily temporary. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're sowing. Whilst you may build wealth for all the practical reasons, we want to make sure that we're sowing into things that bring glory to God because that's ultimately the purpose of our money and our lives. So um, what I'm going to do now is hand over to Jonathan. He's going to talk us through a couple of slides and then we're going to get into some questions uh, which uh, you guys all saw when we invited you along today. So Jonathan, I'm going to hand over to you. Welcome. Great to have you. And uh, yeah, fire away. Thanks, Alex. And I might just jump on uh, what you've just been talking there in terms of stewardship. And just as a, as a little background on Arrow Road Capital um, and why the business exists. Um, so going back to 2012, uh, I was in a position where um, I had developed my skills over a good number of years. Uh, I was technically capable of, of managing debt for other people and had been doing that. Um, but also I could see the opportunities there in that the way that uh, debt was managed and funds management were done was not what I thought was ideal. So one, one's the skill set. But two, the other thing about starting your own business um, is that you have control over it. Uh, that can be a good thing and a bad thing. But one of the key things about having control and, and why I started my, my business is it gives you the ability to say no to things that you don't like. Um, they might be unwise investments or it might be people asking you to be involved in things that aren't, uh, aren't godly. Um, but also it gives you um, the ability to use the resources through the business, your time, your energies in, in different ways. So one example I, I 
I can give that's, that's been very helpful is because I run my own business, I have my choices around time and, and I can choose to do ministry things in the middle of the day or at some stage during the day um, when those things need to be done or when it's most important or most suitable for those activities. And so I can put work aside for a couple of hours and go and read the Bible with a good mate who's not yet a Christian. Um, so I, I think I, I'm not someone who necessarily advocates starting your own business, but for me, that was quite a helpful thing to be able to have that control over your time, control over the things you work on. And having worked at a couple of previous workplaces where you know, the ethics and the morals weren't great, uh, it, it's certainly something I learned through, through difficulty and difficult relationships there that um, starting your own business gives you that control and that ability to honour God with your time and, and, and with your energies in, in a number of good ways. Fantastic. So I might jump on then just the first chart. And um, so there's, a, there's probably a theme that's going to come up a little bit uh, just at the beginning as we work through a couple of charts and, and a couple of big picture issues. And that's it's one thing about increasingly uh, how our society looks to government to solve problems, and particularly in a monetary sense. So the key thing I draw your attention to in this, this first chart is that if you go back before World War I, so you can see those spikes there just before 1920, that's, that's World War I. Obviously, governments spend an awful lot of money during wars. Um, governments generally were running at around you know, 5 to 10% of the size of the economy. So they're quite small relative to what they are today. And if you look at the right-hand side of the graph, there's a whole bunch of different countries there, but you're looking at between 35 and, and in some cases over 50% of the economy is government spending. Now this, this obviously cuts out well before COVID. And if it did continue, you would see that that number really, really spikes during COVID. The government became a massive part of the national economies as the private sector was in many cases, just forced to completely shut down. Oops. So the next one here, now this is, this is the US government debt, um, and this is the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, and this is their projections on what the future looks like based on the policies that the US government is implementing. And, and really what you see is that there were peaks in World War I, peaks after World War II in government debt. And that's, this is government debt relative to the size of the economy. And then you can see the Great Recession um, or the GFC as we often refer to in Australia and then the pandemic. And then you can see the projections out in the future and that's, that's based on the policies that governments have. And, and so essentially what you see there is just this massive growth in the use of debt at the government level. Now. That's also repeated in, in most countries with the corporate sector growing debt levels and the household debt sector um, growing at high levels. So this is the US government debt. Australia, our government debt isn't as high as the US, um, but here our household debt is very, very high. So, um, and, and probably another example is China where corporate debt is their big exposure of the three main types of, of debt. Yeah, no, it's a massive issue. I think we're the second most indebted households on earth here in Australia. What do you think uh, is driving it though? Is it just, it's just our massive cultural change over the last 50 years? 
Yeah, look, I think we, we do have a love affair with property in Australia. So the idea that you own property is, is really ingrained in our culture here. Um, the, you know, the, the old saying of the quarter acre block, um, that's, that's changed a lot. Most blocks these days are quite a bit smaller and people can't afford uh, what they used to, or maybe you've got to go quite a way out of the major cities to get that quarter acre, acre block if you're on an average income. So that's part of it, but, but also, as we've seen the world over, with central banks cutting interest rates to such a low level, uh, they're sending a key message to the economy when they do that, and that is we want you to borrow money. We want you to then use that debt to spend and to invest. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sugar hit. It's, it's monetary steroids. The idea is that you have a shot of that, uh, that, that debt comes in, that money is spent, and that gets the economy going. But the problem, as everyone would know, with, with the sugar hit or with steroids, is that once you take it away, uh, things don't work as well, you go backwards. And so there's an old saying that um, debt is consumption pulled forward. So when you borrow money, if you think about it in a very simple way, if you've got a credit card, you go out and spend, um, you feel good for a little while, uh, that, you know, that spending sort of helps the shopkeeper who's the, who's the recipient of that spending. But then in time, you will get that bill every month and that principal and that interest will eat away at your income and you will have a reduced ability to spend in the future. So there's, there's that balance out that you, you can't just say, well, let's just spend some money now and not worry about the future. Um, debt always comes at a cost. It does slow down economies. It slows down people's ability to spend and invest in the future. And you and I have spoken a bit about worldviews, particularly economic worldviews. So socialism is a, a popular one, particularly in parts of the Western world at the moment. So yes. worth, worth commenting, I think, particularly from, a, I guess, a Christian perspective. Yeah, and, and that's true in that if you remember the first graph, and we've seen that the government as a percent of the economy has grown so much uh, from, you know, less than 10% to many countries around 50%. Um, essentially, that's, that's a lot of spending a whole bunch of different things. You know, yes, there's military, there's welfare, a whole bunch of different government departments and spending types. But ultimately, it's changed society a great amount. So a, a simple thing is, um, is re retirement uh, welfare or age, uh, the age pension. So when the age pension came in around 100 years ago, very few people ever got to age pension age. But now the life expectancy is you get the age pension, you might live 20 years after it. Um, some people will live 40 years after it, some might only get five or 10 years with it. But the, the welfare relative to um, what it was is, is much, much bigger. And so you now have this, this tricky situation where people have a much greater ability to, to receive welfare and not necessarily have to work and that, that requires people to pay taxes. And so, you know, that door on, that the, door on the left that no one's trying to go through, that, that work hard can path. It's the more welfare there is, the more tax you have to have. Um, and ultimately, that's, that slows down economic growth. Um, and there's a couple of different ways people have tried to look at it. But ultimately, you know, a, a larger government as, as a share of the economy slows down growth. And year after year, you're shrinking the economy from what it could be. 
Yeah, and I think the interesting thing with retirement and, and with the age pension is it's gone from being a welfare payment to a retirement strategy. That's mm -hmm. gone from something that was intended to help people in need to something that people see as a, a you know a human right almost. Um, and I think what's scary from my perspective, my understanding is that the ratio of dependency is the real issue. So I think uh, 30, 40 years ago it was a ratio of five workers for every one retiree. Now it's down to three. And I think by 2030, it'll be down to two workers for every one retiree. Mm. Which means that either, I guess, taxes have to rise or alternatively uh, pension payments have to fall or you know, the retirement age gets later. There's all those possible ramifications because of it. Yeah, and, and I think that sort of heads into the next little slide that we've got. And, you know, just on that one, you, the, the comforting lie is that, you know, don't, don't worry, the pension will be there for you. The unpleasant truth is that with more and more people uh, living longer past the, the pension age, um, there is going to come a time when governments will need to confront that. And, and the most obvious thing is to say to people, you know, maybe it's 65 or 67 that, that we said, well, no, you're still healthy. You've got to keep working to your 70, 72. And that number will lift um, and, and it will need to be. And people won't necessarily do the same work. It's, it's not reasonable to expect, you know, tradesmen to continue being on the tools uh, when they're, you know, well into their 60s and 70s. But can they, for instance, use their knowledge and experience to help out at the local bunnings and to instruct younger people like me who, who might want to do a project or two uh, and tell us how to use the tools, tell us how, what products we need, et cetera. How can we transition people to lighter work over time such that they can continue to be fruitful, active and employed uh, well past, you know, 65. Yeah, and I think the important point from this slide particularly is that politicians are not going to warn us about the future. <laughs> we have to, I think with Christians, what I say to people is we ultimately need to take responsibility for our finances. You know, we want um, God's provision. You know, God is the ultimate provider, but we also have to take personal responsibility and I think there is a danger in relying on government or relying, certainly relying on what they're telling us because um, there are challenges ahead. So, um, yeah, really good slide, that one. Um, just want to touch on a few biblical investment principles before we start getting to the, the real meat of it and the questions that I've got lined up for, for Jonathan. Um, just want to share with you a couple of key business principles. Uh, uh, investment principles, if you like, in order to manage your finances well, but in particular from an investment perspective. Um, so the first logical thing is you need to save. And in Proverbs 6, it gives you a story about the ant. You know, the ant stores away for, uh, uh, for the winter so that it has uh, resources for when it needs it. Now, that's a good biblical principle. And you can contrast that with another proverb where down the bottom here it says, don't hoard. So the Bible has this tension between saving and hoarding. Saving and accumulating for specific purposes is just sound and sensible money management. Hoarding is really about setting money aside that's never going to be used. It's often done out of, um, sometimes out of greed, but also out of fear. You know, you're worried about the future, worried I won't have enough, and so you hoard, hoard it. In fact, I think about my grandmother who 
she passed away 10 years ago, but um, well, actually longer than that. Um, but she had gone through the Great Depression. And because of that, she hoarded everything. If you went into her garage, it was just stacked with stuff. In fact, when she died, we found bank statements from like the 1970s because she'd literally kept all of it. Um, and it's that kind of hoarding uh, mentality. So yes, it's wise to save and no, it's unwise to hoard. So saving for the future is important. And obviously to invest any money, you got to save it first. So that's the first one. The second one there is diversification. One of my favorite verses I like to quote is from Ecclesiastes 11 verse two says, invest in seven ventures, yes in eight, because you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Um, and when we think about the pandemic, probably a good example of a disaster. Uh, and the Bible is really saying to us, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, diversify your money. Um, because that's a wise thing to do because you just don't know what may happen in the future. Then the, the next issue is planning. So in Luke 14, 28, this is actually quoting Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, um, who before they want to build a tower, won't they first sit down and count the cost? So likewise, when you're dealing with your finances, your budgeting, your investing, all these things, you need to sit down and plan it. Okay. There needs to be an element of diligence where you're going to work out what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. Okay. So it's going to be a planning component. Um, next part is get advice. Proverbs 15, 22 says, you know, there is wisdom in many counselors, not necessarily one, but you need to get um, advice from people. Now that doesn't necessarily have to be professional licensed people like me could be talking to other wise people that have been through things before, you know, it depends on what we're talking about. Um, but I certainly encourage people to seek out the wisdom of others and often not just one, not just someone who talks it up, someone who's actually got experience, knows what they're talking about, has perhaps track record of success. And that way you're getting the genuine wisdom and proper advice from somebody. The other big one, and this is the hard thing in our society, particularly when we get to talk about cryptocurrency a bit later on is being patient. You know, you, when you accumulate wealth, um, it shouldn't be a hasty process as much as we'd like it to be, it should be a process of, um, of being patient and buying good quality things that will grow over time. And, uh, you know, being impatient with money is the, uh, is the kiss of death, particularly when it comes to stock market and so forth. Impatience can lead to all sorts of problems. In fact, many of you would have heard of Warren Buffett, uh, one of the world's most famous investors, American guy, I think he's, you know, third or fourth richest in the world, who's made all his money through the stock market. One of his famous sayings is the stock market is a transfer of wealth from the impatient to the patient, which is a very good, useful quote. Um, as I mentioned before, we don't want to hoard. The other thing is watch out for your greed. Now we're all human. We all make mistakes. We've got a sinful nature. And when it comes to money, money is very seductive. So if someone turns up on our doorstep and starts promising us, really high returns and things like that. And you see it on ads on Facebook and on TV and so forth. Um, a lot of those things are tapping into our human nature and into our greed. And they, they, in reality, they're too good to be true. So you just need to be very careful. And I always say to people, if someone's promising you returns of greater than 10%, especially in this environment, if it's greater than 10%, alarm bells should be going off in your head, okay? And you think to yourself, mm, is this, what is this, what's really going on here? We've just got to be careful that our human nature doesn't get caught up in our decision-making. That's why it's so important to seek God uh, over our financial decisions. You know, in the book of James, if you want to get wisdom, what do you do? You ask God, 
that's what typical James tells us. So just got to be really careful here to watch ourselves, guard our hearts. And then lastly, nobody knows the future. Now, Jonathan and I, we're going to talk to you about what we see in the future. There's a good proverb that's not contradictory to this, but it, it and that is it says, a sensible man watches for problems ahead and prepares to meet them. The simpleton never looks and suffers the consequences, right? So that means there are pictures, and Jonathan and I are going to paint a bit of a picture tonight for you as to what we think may happen in the future. But Ecclesiastes 8 says nobody knows the future. You know, we don't know when the next war is and all sorts of things that may happen, we can't predict. So just important to realise that when you're looking, when you're reading economic commentary and you're reading the newspaper and things like that, nobody actually knows the future, okay? So just look for, for warning signs and road signs, if you like, but just be cautious there. So there's a few principles um, to, uh, to, get you, to get you started on investing and to really think through those things. And I really encourage you to refer to them when you're going through the planning process. So what we're gonna do now, is we're gonna just jump into some questions. Um, so I'll take down the slides. Um, and uh, obviously, J Jonathan, we're living in very <laughs> strange times. It's been a weird two years. Uh, I never thought I'd see the day where I have to ask permission to leave Australia, <laughs> to, you know, and, or, or actually ask permission to go across state borders. You know, it really is a strange world uh, that we find ourselves in. Um, and obviously, we're hearing all sorts of things like, you know, supply chain issues. And there's just a myriad of issues in, in America, obviously. Obviously, sorry, don't want to have phone calls coming in. Um, you know, inflation in the US is taking off. Um, so I thought I'd just ask, start by asking, what do you think are some of the, the biggest risks in the world at the moment? What are some of the things you're seeing that you think, mm, these are, you know, possible, I guess, red flags or things we should be concerned about when we're investing? Yeah, and this is a very unusual time. And there are far more things to be concerned about than usual in terms of the investment outlook. And so I'll probably just paint a little background picture here. And that it really comes back to what central banks have done with interest rates and with quantitative easing. And what I said earlier in terms of debt is consumption brought forward. Um, governments and central banks have really hit that lever again and again for stimulus. That's both fiscal and monetary. So fiscal is government spending and monetary is cutting interest rates and electronic money printing. So they've consistently hit that stimulus button. And the positive effect that you get from stimulus in terms of economic growth or a hit of economic growth, we're getting less and less of that. Um, and we're having to use more and more stimulus to do that. So that's having um, a diminishing effect? Correct, correct. So if you look at what's happened at COVID and, and supply chain issues and all those sorts of things start to feed into it, we have absolutely smashed that button. Just huge amounts of government spending like we've never seen before apart from world wars. Um, and, you know, Australia, JobKeeper, JobSeeker, enormous programs, you know, over $100 billion has gone out the door. And in hindsight, um, you know, the, the number that the parliamentarians are digging into now, it, it looks like over half of that money people didn't even qualify for um, some of those programs. So just tens of billions of dollars, potentially more, potentially could be over $100 billion is, is in a way kind of been wasted. Um, so... The setup here is right now, things look pretty good in the sense that people have got a lot of money. Uh, the estimates are that around two thirds of the money that governments gave out ended up in savings and one third was spent. So that means people are cashed up. They've been able to generally get on top of you know, their debts. So if they're really tight, didn't have a lot of cash in the bank, 
struggling to meet their debts, often, uh, particularly for businesses, that, that extra government money has, has helped them get on top of things. But that, that comes at a huge cost. Interest rates realistically can't go much lower. In fact, the expectation is they will rise. Um, and government spending has to pull back. Um, and, and we really need the private sector to come back and, and take back its, its normal predominant share of the economy. Just on uh, rates, do you think there's a risk of negative rates at some point? You know, obviously some parts of the world like Europe and Japan have got negative rates. Do you think if, if there was, a, I guess, another big bang crisis type event that the Reserve Bank may risk it and go negative? Do you think they would do that or they'd hold back? Uh, look, the thing about the RBA is, is, is recently they, they changed what they were doing with, with one of the bonds related to 2024. And a few people said, oh, they're, they're unreliable. They changed their mind. The RBA's changed their mind many times in the last five years. So, for instance, they said they, they never thought the cash rate would go below 0.75% and it's at 0.1%. They said they couldn't foresee any circumstances where they would engage in quantitative easing, electronic money printing. Well, they've done bucket loads of it now. Um, and, and one of the things that they used to say, you know, quite loudly was um, low interest rates don't affect house prices. And, and now they'll, they'll actually admit that yes, lowering interest rates has boosted house prices. And it, it's something, you know, real estate agents, economists, you know, people in financial markets have known for years, but the RBA has finally admitted it. So um, whilst, Whilst many, many people can see the stupidity of negative interest rates, um, central bankers are not generally part of that group. Uh, and so the, the possibility that that could happen is, is real. Um, they, they just don't think they've got another tool they can use. And I, and I think that the problem is they're using the wrong tool to fix problems. And, and in a lot of cases, it's actually not their problem to fix. Um, and so that, that's, that's why we potentially can end up with negative interest rates is that the Reserve Bank of Australia feels that it has to intervene and do something when really it's not a problem they should be necessarily doing something about. I think the politicians feel all feel the same way. <laughs> they feel they have to do something. Yeah, they, they do. And, and politicians, you know, natural bent is we have to do something now and stuff the long-term consequences. We won't be around for those. So if we win the next election, we'll worry about what happens after that. Uh, but if we don't win the next election, well, it's no problem to deal with. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, that's great. Any other risks that we need to be aware of or are the main ones? Uh, well, certainly there's the, the, the China and Taiwan risk. Uh, there's, you know, and, and trade issues with countries not, not getting along. So what, one of the old things that, that economists will often say is that trade is far better than war. You know, the people you trade with are generally the people you get along with. So we, we encourage, you know, countries to trade with each other and just get along in a functional way. Um, so there's, there's that as well. Um, and I guess in terms of investments, particularly with, with low interest rates, um, that really has ramped up the amount of speculation that goes on. So rather than people sitting down and making long-term investment decisions, people are feeling cornered that they have to do something because you know, if you've got a term deposit or an overnight account, you're going backwards after inflation. So you feel like you have to do something. So do you borrow money and buy an investment property? Uh, do you get into you know, more speculative assets, you know, mining 
yeah, mining explorers, mining stocks, um, you know, cryptocurrencies, uh, non-fungible tokens, and a whole bunch of other crazy things that are going on at the moment. Do, do you get into those because you feel you have to do something? You feel that you've been cornered with the low interest rates? Yeah, no, it's fascinating times. Um, I guess everyone's favourite question is around house prices and what's going to happen there. I must say, I've been staggered over the last 12 months to watch, I think Sydney house prices are up 30%, they were saying the other day. Um, and I think the median house in Sydney is now 1.3 million. But even I notice even the regional areas like, you know, the Wollongongs and Central Coast, and I sure it's the same in the Gold Coast and all these other places, they're getting people moving out of the big cities into them. And so they're under enormous pressure as well. So house prices, where, where to next, <laughs> if you're brave enough to delve into that area? Yeah, look, I, I guess I'll go back to the basics and talk about the basics. I'm actually predicting where house prices go. There's, there's a whole bunch of people making decisions every day and trying to predict um, what people do when they're not necessarily rational is a hard thing to do. So probably the biggest thing that's driven, driven house prices in the last five to 10 years has been cutting of interest rates. Sure. And so... Probably in around 2017, the RBA was saying, no, 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 lower interest rates don't impact house prices. 2019, two of their senior economists came out with a paper and said, roughly, every 1% cut in interest rates leads to about a 25% increase in house prices. Wow. Now, you look at what's happened in the last year, we've cut interest rates by 0.75% or 0.65%, um, you know, since the onset of COVID. Um, and we've seen another um, jump up in house prices. So that's proved to be fairly consistent. Sometimes there's a bit of a lag, but every time there's been a decent cut in interest rates, you know, the real estate agents will tell you it's, it's gold for them. People rushing in want to buy investment properties. The, the path now looks like interest rates will rise. Um, you know, maybe it's only one or 2% over the next three years but that's sufficient to really take the heat out of things. And I guess one of the ways that a lot of people in investment markets try to understand assets, asset prices, is you look at cash flows and the returns you get from an asset. And so often an anchor point is the 10-year government bond yield. And so if the 10-year government bond yield rises, people use that as a way to say, well, that's a safe asset everything else that's not safe should give me a premium over that. So if, let's say, for instance, the 10-year government bond yield is 4%, then the yield on your rental property, you might expect that to be 5 or 6%, plus some, hopefully some capital gains. Well, the current rental yields of you know, 2 or 3% you know, would look very silly relative to a 10-year government bond yield of 4%, for instance. So if interest rates do move up, and there is an expectation that the market is pricing that in. Um, if they do move up, then that starts to take the pressure off house prices going up. Now, whether it leads to falls of a decent level, that's hard to predict. But given we've seen so much ramp up um, as interest rates have been cut, it's not unreasonable to expect we'll see some pullback as interest rates rise. Be interesting, yeah. I mean, I was interested to see when you said for every 1% drop, in rates, there was a 25% increase in prices. If the reverse was true, there'd be, there'd be some uh, people in for some big uh, big scares, potentially. 
Yeah, and, and I think where we're heading, what was probably easiest to pick out is that you, you sometimes read stories of people in the newspaper and they'll say, oh, you know, five years ago, I didn't have anything and now I've got 10 investment properties. Almost inevitably, when you dig into those stories, you find that those people have very high debt levels. Uh, those sort of people are the ones who are, who are the sharp end of the spear, who will get into trouble most quickly. Because if interest rates rise, the rental yields stay the same, all of a sudden there's a lot more interest they've got to pay. And also from time to time you get the clamp downs where banks will say, well, no, you can't stay interest only anymore. You have to go to principal and interest. Um, and that is a huge jump in, in repayments for people when they switch from interest only to P&I. Uh, so it's, it's those sort of, you know, aggressive, um, you know, arguably speculative, highly geared property portfolio sort of types. Those are the ones who, who could first get into trouble. Um, and, and I guess, you know, it's the sort of thing where those people are probably starting to look at, you know, the fact that interest rates could rise now and saying, okay, should I sell a couple? Should I reduce the leverage I've got in, in, in the portfolio across the houses? That's, that's kind of the wise thing to do at this point, I guess, is if you are in that position is to maybe pull back a little bit and, and make sure that, you know, if interest rates do rise by two or 3%, that you can still afford to, to cover the monthly repayments. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And that's one thing I always say to people is ask yourself if rates were to rise from here um, and the banks basically, when they when you take out a home loan, they assess you uh, at about, well, it was previously two and a half percent above the rate and APRA has just announced that they've bumped it up by half a percent. So if you're borrowing at two and a half percent, they'll assess you at five and a half percent. And I always say to people, you know, what would your life look like if rates were at five and a half percent on your current debt? Could you service that easily? Would you, as a Christian, still be able to live generously? All those kind of things, if rates were to rise. I think the, I guess the warning message I always have for people is that uh, the Bible warns, it says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the slave of the lender. Um, certainly in my 20 odd years of giving advice, I've never seen a time where I feel people need to be more cautious than ever about their debt levels. Because it's, as you, I mean, it's really unprecedented. I don't think Australia, and you can correct me, has ever had interest rates this low. Has there been times throughout history where we've had rates this low? Oh, look, there's charts out there showing that, you know, over hundreds and thousands of years, there's never been interest rates like this. Um, it, um, and the US at the moment, it's particularly um, egregious what's going on there with inflation of 6% and, you know, an overnight rate of effectively nothing. You know, the gap between how much money you lose by, by holding cash or, or a term deposit um, is just huge. Um, you know, people in a very difficult situation, if they're retired, they have trying to live off savings. Um, yeah, it, probably, it's very, very hard. Well, that's probably a great segue into that next question then, and that is where can you make money in a zero rate world? Because as you say, in the US and here, it's negative real rates of return on cash. Where, where, do, you, where do you go? Where's, where's, where's it, you know, safe, safe-ish? <laughs> yeah, and the, sh the short answer is that there's really not a lot um, that you can do. Uh, and that's, I mean, you, you wish there was a different answer, but there, there just isn't. Um, so, 
I mean, you look at something like equities, you know, and, and people talk about things like PE ratios, price earnings ratios, you know, they're historically at high levels. If interest rates start to rise, they could quite foreseeably pull back. So how safe are equities? Uh, we've spoken about house prices again, interest rates flow through to that. Um, debt, things like government debt, well, it's depending how broad your portfolio is, when you, if you invest in government debt, it's not unforeseeable that you could have some defaults within that. So, so some governments in the world, particularly in emerging markets, but also countries like um, Japan, Greece, Italy, um, they're not in sustainable situations that, you know, eventually they're very likely to default based on the trajectories they're, they're going on. So th there are very few things. Um, I guess I'm fortunate that I, I work in a space where I deal with debt that is generally low risk by nature, but pays a decent return. Um, the, the problem with that, and, and the reason that I work with, you know, very high wealth individuals, families and institutions is because they're generally shut off uh, to people who are not in those areas. So there, there have been some areas that I opened up that are more accessible. So peer-to-peer -peer lending is one of those. But the, the problem for me as someone who deals with that stuff day to day is that we could sit here and have a conversation for an hour about peer-to-peer -peer lending, what you should look for, um, what's good, what's bad, and people could walk away perhaps dangerously informed, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And so there are spots out there, um, which, which I work on, that, that are good, that are getting people decent yields and have a lot of protections built in. But unfortunately, they come with a level of complexity and illiquidity that, that most people are just not able to deal with. So um, in short, you know, this is a problem that central banks have created. They've put people in a corner and they want you to either spend your money or borrow and, and speculate with, with that money. That, that's kind of what the end game is in a way. I always joke with uh, clients that financial planning used to be easy. 10 years ago, you'd come to me, we could put half your money in uh, defensive assets and turn deposits and get five, six percent and then the other half in equities to beat, to beat inflation and to grow your wealth. But now it's, it's difficult everywhere, like shares and property overpriced, cash and, and bonds are, are next to nothing. So it's, uh, it's, it's certainly the most challenging I've ever witnessed, that's for sure. Um, the other thing I was thinking as you talk about government debt is I think historically, one of the characteristics of politicians uh, and what concerns me with the current government and all the debt they've racked up, my understanding is the predictions are it'll take till 2080 for Australia to repay its debt. But I think that presumes that politicians actually have an intent to repay. And uh, I think history would suggest that politicians don't necessarily think like that. They kind of push the problem into the future and it often gets bigger and bigger. Very much agree. And, and I think as a country, we have changed so much um, since Peter Costello was treasurer. And, you know, there's a, it's actually very difficult to criticise Peter Costello. People have a few things to say. Sometimes they'll say, oh, well, there was a mining boom and that's why he was able to pay off debt. The mining boom came well after he balanced the budget. But his legacy of paying off debt and putting Australia in a great financial position 
has meant that you know, Kevin Rudd and others could come along and spend money in, in the GFC. Um, and then again, in COVID, there's, there's room for governments to, to borrow and, and spend money. Now, that they, they have the ability to do that. It doesn't mean they should have done that. And it certainly doesn't mean that what the way they've done it is wise. Uh, but yeah, certainly that attitude of, hey, let's balance the budget, let's, let's keep our debts low as a government or maybe even pay them all off and, and put money aside for the future. That attitude is just gone completely. And, and one of the things that's really taken over in the last three or four years um, is a, I mean, people say it's a school of economic thought. I mean, that's, that's being a little bit generous. It's, it's almost anti-economics in some way, that modern monetary theory or MMT. And essentially what it says at its core is governments never need to default on debts in their own currency, they can always print money. And that's partly true. A government can always print money in its own currency and just give it out to pay whatever debts it wants to. But that comes with hyperinflation if you keep doing that. Uh, and, and certainly through history, there's many examples. And in more recent times, you know, there's Venezuela and Zimbabwe and countries like Turkey are in a whole bunch of trouble at the moment because they keep printing money. Um, so, that, that MMT school of thought has been telling politicians for the last three or four years, don't worry about it, just keep spending money. You don't have to balance it out with, with taxes, it'll all be okay. And the reality is in the short, medium term, that works. In the long term, it fails abysmally. So I guess in a sense, it would be fair to say that living standards, I think in the Western world will decline over the next 10 to 20 years. It's, yeah, it's entirely possible. So, for instance, if you look at, look at a country like Japan and what it's gone through, um, they, they hit a situation, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where things had got out of control. Their property was way overpriced. They were borrowing too much money. Um, a whole bunch of things that maybe don't look that different from, from where we are now. Um, and then that they had two options. One is the painful option. You take your medicine, you deal with the debt, you know, the assets get restructured, debts are defaulted on, um, the people who are owed the debts take control of the assets and sell them for what they can get. One is you go through that sort of situation. And if you think about the Asian financial crisis, so for instance, somewhere like South Korea, or another good example was the global financial crisis. Uh, a country like Iceland was in the same sort of situation. And so for South Korea and Iceland, they took the medicine and living standards dropped quite a bit. You know, you saw the economy shrink by you know, 25, 30% um, very quickly, you know, one or two years. But then because they'd done that hard work, they'd taken the pain, they were able to get back to the same level in around sort of five to 10 years. So it's very painful, but you, you can get back there. Um, but then you look at somewhere like Japan, and they just have never taken the medicine. So for 30 years, they've gone nowhere. Yeah, I always use the expression that a recession cleans out the system. Absolutely. So, unfortunately, I think our politicians in the Western world, uh, they, they don't want to see a recession ever again if they can avoid it. There's a belief that you can do that, but in the end, it's, it's like bushfires. Um, there are people who believe that we should never have bushfires. Uh, and so what ultimately happens is, is you, you just get more and more leaf litter on the ground and it just builds up year after year after year. 
And then the conditions are very hot, very dry, and you get an absolute inferno. Um, the alternative to that is you can have smaller bushfires. You can have them more regularly uh, and they don't do as much damage when they come through. You need to pick one or the other. Um, the idea that you can never have a bushfire is just not realistic. Mm. And you're right. That's, that's kind of where politicians have got to, that uh, they constantly want to put out the fire um, before it does any damage, burns back, you know, the stupid speculative elements of the economy, teaches people to save more and not have so much debt. But in constantly saving people from their stupidity, you encourage them to take more risk. Absolutely. Very, very true. Well, okay, let's just jump in. I guess looking at the positive side, where would you say are some of the opportunities at the moment, given the world we're, we're in? Where, where do you see uh, any, I guess, pockets, if you like? Yeah. Um, so certainly there will always be, even in times when assets feel like they're overpriced or, you know, on measures are overpriced, there'll always be gaps, um, just much fewer of them. So, for instance, there'll always be new technologies coming through, and particularly things um, in health, uh, in healthcare, in services. Um, those areas likely continue to, to grow in advance. Um, there's the very, very tricky part of figuring out you know, who's going to be an Amazon and who's going to be a pets.com, you know, one's turned into one of the largest companies in the world and one was a complete dud that blew up in a matter of months. Um, and, and trying to figure out which is going to be which is very, very hard. Um, so I guess I, I won't profess to be an expert in, in that sort of area of equities, um, but there are people who've managed that sort of stuff very well. Um, and, and they can achieve good outcomes over long periods of time by focusing on those things that are sustainable businesses that will continue to grow for long periods of time. Um, so there's opportunities there. In, in the sorts of debt areas I work in, you know, still able to get returns above inflation um, without taking a lot of risks, so that's good. Um, but it does start to get limited after that because once you start thinking about the possibility that interest rates rise, that impacts almost every type of investment. And there are very few that don't have, you know, substantial downside if interest rates rise. Mm. Yeah, and that's, I guess, that, that's the million-dollar question. And it's probably the million-dollar question is more a question of when as opposed to if. Yeah, yeah. So it is, it is likely, certainly, the markets globally are starting to say interest rates will rise. Not necessarily a lot. Um, central banks are quite skittish about these things. Yeah. But the, the risk is, though, that, Inflation is in the US, you know, it's over 6%. So that the pressure to do something about that, to respond to that is substantial. And so the risk is that inflation perhaps gets uh, set in or endemic, and then you just have to fight even harder to get on top of it. Uh, and certainly that's what happened in the 1970s, um, that interest rates, you know, in the US had to be hiked quite a lot. Paul Volcker, you know, took it on. Um, people hated him for doing it, but they got on top of inflation. Yeah. And for us in Australia, it was probably the, you know, the late 80s recession that, that, again, high interest rates, getting on top of things, cleaning out the speculative parts of the economy. Um, again, painful process, but it was all the better for it in, in the years that followed. Yeah, right. 
Okay. Um, well, here's, if you're a betting man then, where would you say is the best performing asset class in the next 10 years? <laughs> or is it it's a tough one? It doesn't have to be obviously in Australia too, it could be anywhere. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately what it's likely going to be is, is one of those high growth areas. And, and it, I, I guess I really struggle to do that. So um, as a debt investor, my job is avoid stupid stuff, yeah. right? So you want every loan you make, every debt investment to work out. You don't want any bad ones. The, the equity side of things, uh, they often say, you know, if you've got three winners and two losers, as a portfolio manager, you've done a great job. And, and I'm not the best person at sort of picking those upside things. So I really struggle with that. But I think it's very likely in 10 years time, we'll look back and there'll be some high growth sectors that have really done well. Um, I just, I just be really guessing just to say what they would be. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the point is ultimately buying really high quality assets that have a very good growth trajectory um, over the next 10 years would be the way to go and try not to pay too much for it now because if you pay too much now, you'll dampen your long-term returns anyway, yeah. Um, the last but not least here is crypto. Crypto obviously has been a hot topic. I mean, this year it's been an unbelievable roller coaster. I think it's close to what all-time highs at the moment or thereabouts, but there was a point where it halved as a financial planner, I've always been very nervous looking at it because it's so volatile. Um, yeah, tell us your thoughts on, on crypto. So it probably helps just to take a little aside here in, in what is an investment? So how do you value something? And so there's two ways to look at investments or, or, or any asset price generally. So what, what I would consider investment is something that has cash flows. Um, so that might be, not necessarily um, cash flows immediately. So something like a bond or a debt instrument has immediate cash flows. If it's a if a sort of blue chip equity, it'll have dividends. Um, so they will have cash flows immediately. But then what are those cash flows turn into over time? So some businesses, they might not have a lot of cash flow now because they're reinvesting, but in five or 10 years time, they'll start spinning off a lot of cash flows. So one way to value investment is to look at its cash flows now and in the future and, and form a valuation based on that the other is essentially to say it's a piece of art and what is a piece of art worth well art generally isn't sort of put on the wall and rented out so it generally doesn't have a cash flow a piece of art is basically i think someone else will pay this number for it in the future and that is that is far less scientific yeah. um, and so cryptocurrencies really fit in that piece of art category you buy a cryptocurrency because you think more people will join in the cryptocurrency community and will push the prices up. Now, that's certainly been... At the moment, like a lot of fund managers are launching uh, crypto ETF funds. Hmm. I think uh, what CBA announced last week that they were going to accept crypto or something, weren't they? Something along those lines. Yeah, so they're going to help facilitate people investing in cryptocurrency, which... You know, it's 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 a hot thing at the moment, so they probably you know tick a few boxes doing that. But if it all comes crashing down, uh, I wonder if there's a whole bunch of people who blame them and, and try and sue them or, or get some sort of recompense from them. So, you know, it's a very tricky thing for a business like CBA that's got a long reputation 
um, and, and generally seen as a fairly stable, boring institution to, to get into that, um, you are putting your reputation on the line. Yeah. What about the technology itself? I mean, do you see a trend where, I mean, the thing I look at is not so much the, the main ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum and things like that, but more what the central banks are doing and the potential move to a digital currency, you know, for the Aussie dollar, the US dollar, um, all, all that kind of thing. Do you see those things are, you know, likely to happen? Yeah, so there is a gradual evolution towards that. Um, but the technology behind that, it's, it's a tricky one. Um, and it's, it's a bit like maybe the internet that we saw, you know, back 20 odd years ago that the internet has become a huge thing. It's, it's a key part of our lives. And, and through COVID, we saw how important it is. But who was it who made money out of the, out of the internet? A lot of the stocks that were really hot, you know, in 1999, 2000, just cratered, went bankrupt. Um, some of them came through and survived. So it's not easy to pick which ones will be the winners. Um, the technology behind it, look, the, the reason the technology behind crypto has some value is because there's a lot of databases out there that are really badly built. So cryptocurrency is a way to store information and, and transfer things, transfer ownership back and forth in a way that's reasonably efficient. But do they what purpose do they ultimately fulfill? So if you look at almost all of the cryptocurrencies that are out there, it's merely just people speculating on it. Almost none of them are used in day-to-day -day transactions because things like the US dollar and the Aussie dollar do a perfectly good job of fulfilling those, those functions of paying for things on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so I think there's a lot of excitement around those, but we're, we're not seeing a lot of real-life examples of the technology changing things substantially. Um, there are other ways to get good databases and to transfer information and transfer money um, that in many cases are, are far more efficient and far cheaper than a cryptocurrency. So it's, the technology behind it is helpful, but the real world applications have been talked about for three or four years and we're just not seeing them come through in, in waves. There, there's dribbles of them at best. Yeah, and, and now the climate change people don't like them either because I believe uh, the, the mining of Bitcoins and that uh, uses huge amounts of energy as well. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, a huge amount of electricity goes into it. It's like a small country. And, and there are people out there in the Bitcoin community who try and say, well, um, it, it's not a big deal. It's far less than, you know, the other payment systems. But the other payment systems actually help economies function. People are not using Bitcoin to buy pizzas and, and to you know, pay for their groceries, you know, they're just trading Bitcoin back and forth, trying to take a view about where we'll go in the next week. Mm. Yeah, well, look, my, my comment on it is just, and this is for, for people listening, is just that it is highly speculative. You're really relying on other people coming in, buying it off you at a higher price at some stage. And that's very, very hard to predict. And it's, it's risky. Now, I know people who've made an absolute fortune from it, and good luck to them and fantastic. Um, and I can certainly see central banks moving towards digital currencies longer term because of the potential controls that would give them. Uh, but for the average person buying crypto, particularly now, 
where it's it's got got really into the fad phase now by the look of it. I remember back in 2001, I worked at Merrill Lynch as a broker and we're looking at these internet stocks. And I'll, I'll never forget sitting in a, a morning meeting where the head of, uh, head of strategy said, um, in five years time, 75% of the NASDAQ stocks will be broke. And I remember him saying that. And five years later, he was absolutely right. And the NASDAQ fell 80%. So it um, it's the same risks I think with uh, crypto. Arguably riskier in in one sense because it's not backed in the same way by a real business. Although a lot of those businesses weren't real much, <laughs> were nothing more than a business plan in many cases either. So I think we're already seeing that with crypto in a way. So the last number I saw is there's over fourteen thousand cryptocurrencies out there. Wow. Um, the vast vast majority of them you've never heard of them. They're absolutely worthless. They're a piece of rubbish. And uh, the term they often use is, is rug pull, that someone issued them, passed them around, sold them, pumped up the price for a while, some mugs got in, they sold out, and essentially they, they took money from people. Elon um, Musk, you just got to watch his Twitter feed and they, well, you know which one to buy next. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's maybe a, a few dozen that people take seriously, and then there's thousands that are just toilet paper. Yeah, no, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, so it's, I think the message is be very, very careful. And what I always say, because I get these questions on, on air on our weekly radio program, is if you are going to allocate money to this because you feel strongly about going to, is allocate a very, very, very small amount of your capital, i.e. money that you're willing to lose um, because it is so volatile. So yeah, just be careful. Great. Well, look, we're running out of time there. Is it, I guess, was there any sort of summary comments you'd like to make? Just some of the topics we talked about, if there's anything in summary before we get into jump into Q&A and open the floor to people to ask questions. Look, I'd probably go back to a couple of the points that you raised at the beginning. And, and now's a time to really be patient and not be greedy. Um, and it's very, very hard when getting income, getting a basic return is so difficult to do that. But the tide has gone that direction now for quite a period of time. And, and we can't say when the tide will turn and, and go the other way. But so many people have abandoned you know, sound investment principles and have gone for speculation that there is a risk that when the tide turns, it, it's going to be um, quite difficult for many, many people. So as hard as it is, um, now is a time for patience and to, to hold back from being greedy. Um, and... And the potential opportunity there, and again, we, we can't say when this will happen, is that if, if you have cash, when other people need to sell, you are the king and you can yeah. say what price you will pay. And often at these points of, of the cycle, of the investment cycle, um, you know, there's very few people who are left with cash. Um, everyone's gone full into stocks, full into whatever they can that, that has a high prospective return. So there is the potential there that if you wait and you're patient and you've got things um, that hold their value, uh, that you will be able to buy things at much lower prices, maybe in the next couple of years. Don't have a crystal ball to tell you that, but you know it, it does feel like we, we are just very speculative at the moment. I think it's great advice, yeah. I mean, I think, just to add, sort of add to that, now is the time to be thinking about how can I protect my capital? Um, we've had very good returns. And, you know, you look in the media and you see all the industry funds say how great their returns are. Um, but looking forward, if 
you're buying assets at elevated prices now, you're sort of guaranteeing yourself lower future returns if you pay too much now. So my message to people is, and you hit the nail on the head, be patient. As frustrating as it is looking at cash, which is basically negative, um, but be patient because opportunities will arise. Some of the commentators that I follow in the US who have got long-term track records, uh, you know, people like Jeremy Grant from GMO and people like that, they're predicting negative returns of, you know, stock markets of being down 50 plus percent because the, the, the valuations are so high. Um, so I think there are enough red, <laughs> red lights flashing. Um, and I think the other thing that'll be interesting next year, if I, in terms of the COVID, who I'm sure all of us are sick about hearing about COVID, but, but looking at what's going on in Europe at the moment, many countries are now going back into lockdown despite significant you know, vaccination. And therefore, I think there is a risk, and I really hope I'm wrong here, but I'm concerned that we'll be in lockdown in July next year, which I think will be torture for most of us since people have done their bit and gone out. Um, but I think that is a real risk. Um, and that will create more uncertainty and more job loss and more, you know, more of these things. So I do think capital protection is very critical at the moment. And that will lead to huge opportunity too. That's the thing. Patience is the name of the game because that's when opportunity will fall on your lap at some point. So what I'm going to do now, we're going to jump into a bit of a q and I'm just going to bring up the slides again briefly here. So Jonathan's done a fantastic job there. Um, just in terms of our ministry and how we can help, um, as you know, many of us, we have lots of courses, eBooks, all sorts of resources on our website that you can check out books on these kind of topics in fact we've got a christian investing course um, you can look at our past webinars uh, you can look at our radio show through the christian wealth podcast so there's a lot of resources there to check out um, if you do need personalized help we do have a financial planning and mortgage breaking service um, the financial planning service is particularly busy at the moment just due to demand it's just gone crazy in the last six months um, but certainly we, we do love to help people as much as we possibly can um, so we can talk about those sort of services. Um, and uh, yeah, please, if you do need help, uh, please reach out. And um, we're going to jump into Q&A now, but I just wanted to say a special thanks to Jonathan for sharing his wisdom. Because I know, um, you know over 20 years of being in financial markets and it takes time to build up this kind of immense knowledge. So I really appreciate you being with us, uh, Jonathan. 